makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Betu Wastelo, Chante Waste Napechu Zapielo, Le Unkipiki He Wastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart and good feelings. It's good for all of us to be here since 1992. This is First Voices Radio. Antiochus and Ghost are sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Esopus and the lands of the Muncie speaking Lenape. This is an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archive, downloading, and listing. You know, sometimes art is considered a conspiracy by those who would not understand, quote unquote, the medicine, as our guest, Greg Deal of Pyramid Lake Paiute, who lives along the front range of Colorado who is a multidisciplinary disruptor expressed through his work as an artist and an activist. He is informed through his native identity and includes the exhaustive critiques of American society, its politics, popular culture, and history. Greg often confronts those issues through his paintings, murals, and performance work, filmmaking, spoken word, and more. He invites the viewer to confront both the present and the past. In a 2018 TED Talk, Greg described his work as honoring indigenous experiences, challenging stereotypes, and pushing for accurate representations of indigenous peoples in art. It is through these disruptions of stereotypes and historical representations which Greg uses the term to describe his work. Greg has exhibited his work at notable institutions, both locally, nationally, and internationally, including the Denver Art Museum, Redline Gallery, and the Smithsonian Institution. We talk about Greg's current exhibit, End of Silence, is on view through October 12th at Redline Contemporary Art Center in Denver, Colorado. A major review in the Denver Post on September 19th called exhibit Loud in Every Way and also said it is one of the best and most ambitious exhibitions this year in the region. It has a lot to say as much about painting and pop culture as it does the politics of convenience, human mistreatment, and oppression. 
First of all, I want to welcome you to First Voices Radio. Good to see you and welcome you once again, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm super excited to be here. It's good to good to see your face. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what we're going to talk about. So yeah, I wanted to refer to your similarities and how punk rockers and Native Americans fight the power from the Denver Post. How do Native musicians kind of take over rap and ID with that? And now it's punk rockers and Native Americans fight the power. To me, it's kind of alluding to there's some kind of unity going on that's not really talked about. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's uh, there's a film by um, one of the producers was um, Stevie Salas uh, called Rumble. And it sort of fits. I, I, it, it's really interesting because with that film, you can see the effect that Native people have had on a lot of these um, a lot of these music movements. Um, but likewise, you know, and especially coinciding with history and the way that history uh, sort of um, can dictate when some terrible things were happening and where, um, you know, we start entering into the age of self-determination, um, punk rock starts coming up. And um, and as that happens, like I, I I've met a lot of uh, old and new like punk rock native uh, native folks, and um, they are essentially, I, I feel like that, you know, the disconnect that we have going from who we are to living in America, um, almost ha we have a universal experience that happens there of disenfranchisement and confusion and everything else. And, and that breeds anger and it breeds, uh, you know, rebellion. And I mean, punk rock speaks to all those things. Hip hop speaks to all of those things. And I think that that uh, ultimately is sort of the commonality. You know, when I was growing up, there just wasn't really anything to, you know, I, di I didn't grow up on the res. I, I grew up um, in a small town in Utah and uh, was on the outs as uh, a brown person in that space, as was my sister and my mom. And, and, um, and so it was sort of about trying to gravitate towards something that, that sort of helped with survive you know survival like it to be able to find your place and at that time uh for me that place was punk rock but it also speaks to the anger and the disenfranchisement and, and also the angst of youth and you know all the things that kind of tie into that and um I, it doesn't necessarily speak directly to an indigenous experience but it certainly um it certainly points at a shared feeling uh, of of disconnect in a space where power structures run everything. You know, I can go back and identify with my times and periods of growing up off and on the reservation all my life. But I always felt later as, as I understood my place, you know, like I really didn't belong there or knew that it belonged here. But this music scene, it felt like I was inclusive of everything. But one thing that really came out of that for me, Greg, was a feeling like I was detoxing, as you say, was anger or whatever behavior came mm -hmm. out of that. It felt like it was a detoxing of that. And I think um, part, of, part of that is we are involvement in American society. We have to identify ourselves and how we fit. And sometimes that's painful. Certainly, certainly. I, I, it's interesting. Um you know, having done that when I was a kid and then my, uh, my older kids are, um, into the same music that I'm into. They're in my records and 
constantly asking questions and we're going to shows together and things when they pop up. And um, it's interesting watching the way that they navigate that because they're living in better circumstances than I grew up in and they have more support than, than I did. And, um, but it's still, there's still a sort of cohesive, uh, draw to that music and to the things that are there. And uh, I mean, I happen to live in sort of a Trump country. Um, so maybe that helps a little bit too, but, um, it's interesting cause I'm watching my oldest almost sort of align themselves in, uh, within the, the, the values of those spaces. And that ultimately is going into other places, whether that's being anti-homophobic, uh, anti, you know, transphobic, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti, all, you know, all those things seem to sort of feed into, uh, Sage knowing that they are also surrounded by, you know, hardcore staunch conservative uh, evangelicals. And so it's interesting watching it even from that perspective, but it still tracks. It still tracks. Mm. Do you think that there's a certain, we probably said this already, but a certain amount of misfit that as a native, quote unquote, American, you still can't fit. So you're also a misfit in the greater society of America, where does that sit with you today? Um, it's a constant, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> excuse me. It's, it's, it's really just a constant, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the moment that I settle and everything's okay, something else pops up, you know, and, and, uh, I think it's ever changing, which, which I think is life. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in an occupation that allows me to sort of do whatever I want, however I want. Like, I don't really need to be concerned about appearances. I don't really need to concern myself with liking something or not liking something. And I'm able to sort of lean into things without having to navigate the power structures that might threaten your job or threaten, you know, if, if you're trying to have an integrity moment, uh, you know, your job might, might want to let you go because, they don't want the trouble, whether it's right or wrong. And and I don't have to really deal with those things. So I feel really fortunate in that way. But, uh, but my kids do as they navigate school and, and things like that. So that's, that's, a you know, an aspect of it that I do have to navigate that, um, not directly to me, but, uh, you know, to my kids, uh, my kid was in a class and the teacher, starts each lesson, uh, in a business class to start each lesson with a, uh, a statement of some kind, uh, most of which is usually aligned with, um, you know, some, some conservative thought. And one day said, uh, native Americans are not offended by, uh, sports mascots. It's just, a you know, it's a red herring and it's just the liberals that are doing all this stuff. And like the child of one of the people, one of many people who are involved in that debate is sitting in the class and, you know, how do you how do you handle that? So, <laughs> from what I understand of you, Greg, in your art, is that you had to go through the experience to have a quick mind to understand your position. Where, like walking in in opulence all the time, you knew where to go, what not to touch, what not to break. But now that punk rock that you say isn't in the music. Now you're to me, I'm feeling like you're protecting your children by the experience you've had and that art. You, the artwork is also coming out with your with the influence of how your your kids are experiencing somewhat of the same path you have. 
Yeah, um, I think so. I, and my kids have a lot more privilege than I grew up with, that's for sure. But um, yeah, it's all tied together. I mean, there's blurred lines between my work and, you know, the the food on my table. And, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing work, there's not a separation of ideas from there to my home and the way that we're dealing with the world around us. Um, as I've gotten older, you know, I'm, I'm less, uh, well, I'm not less angry, more controlled, I guess, uh, in terms of where that goes, um, trying to be a good example, you know, to, to my kids. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see, how these things sort of have a um a cohesiveness between generations even and and obviously i'm not even really first generation for for punk uh there's generations before me on that and so um it's interesting to be able to watch that line and how that's progressed and it, and it's stayed pretty consistent in terms of the way that it does um the way that it speaks to different issues and does different things um, it's everybody else that perverts things. I think that's pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty standard. Let's talk about your artwork. The, I call them murals. Looking at them now, they're, they're bigger than life size. They're currently showing at the Red Line Art Center in, in uh, Denver, I think it is, right? Yeah. And yeah. I'm reading one that has a very important word in it. It says, apologize. In other words, a native is talking to, it looks like a pioneer in a coonskin hat. I won't apologize for acting out of line. You see the way I am. You can leave any time. Could you talk about the apology that's behind that? And is that apology is just not good enough? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple things in there. I mean, um, that's from a, a Black Flag song called Nervous Breakdown. And, um, and it's about uh, somebody being unapologetic in what they do. Um, and, uh, and recognizing that, you know, like that I can have my space and I can do what I want. I think native people have been, you know, so often, um, misrepresented, you know, for, for generations and generations to the degree that there's an expectation of our existence. And that expectation is predicated upon, um, the perception of our identity and not the reality of our identity. And we've not often, uh, been afforded the right to even inform what that identity looks like to the degree that um, we have hundreds of years of misconception of who and what uh, we are as 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 a people um, collectively and uh, singularly. And so um, I think that that's interesting because it, I, somebody actually commented on that and said, well, that's what the Trumpers say. Um, they would say something like that. And, there, and, and so I'm like, yeah, but that's not the same thing. You know, it's just like a bunch of tiki torch whites saying blood and soil. Like, whose blood and whose soil are you talking about? Uh, because when it comes down to it, if there is blood and soil to be discussed, it is our blood and it is our homelands that, that should be discussed. And so in this statement, uh, I think that you know, it, it kind of works along those lines, but we're in such a strange moment. Uh, the United States, uh, socially and, and even culturally, um, that we're often saying the same words and they're not meaning the same thing. So nobody is really understanding what anybody else is saying. Um, the conversations I may be having with somebody who is, you know, super far right might use the same language, but we are not saying the same thing. And, um, 
and that I think also speaks to how limiting uh, English is. You know, we have words in our language about you know how to sort of bridge and understand these things. Um, and English is is sort of like an unmanned fire hose, a whole lot of power and nobody guiding it, you know, and, and so it be- ends up becoming really confusing. That's great. I like that. Once you've heard an apology from the settler, the invader, whatever you call them, that you get to identify what is genuine and what is disingenuous in apology. If they say they're sorry for me, it's that they're exposing themselves but yet they still remain predatory, exposing the apologetic predator. That's the mindset. It brings clarity because of your experience with and in that punk rock world and then also growing up in Utah where, yes, the mindset of of those settlers are far different than ones that would be in Minnesota, but it's it's thinly veiled. So, yes, different energies in places, but underneath all of them is that bubbling that Oh, we're, we're uncomfortable with natives still being here, especially people who, like yourself, Greg Deal, are out expressing. Yeah, you know, and I think you're you're so right. They're, they're really, we, you say you're sorry, but um, there's about a dozen different apologies. I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> I'm sorry that you're upset, which has no accountability attached to it. And I, I even talked to my children about this, you know, that I'm, Apology is not just words. Um, it's about being uh, not just being sorry, but being willing to change the behavior and not do it again. And um, and that that's the crux of it. And the irony of all of that is um, that if you if you follow any Christian teaches the way that Jesus taught is that saying sorry isn't just saying sorry, but you have to go through this whole repentance process of humbling yourself and changing the behavior and being kinder to the people that are around you. And the same people that are saying that they follow Jesus are the same people that are dismissive about the existence of people like us um, or anybody who is different from from them. And um, yeah, all the information's there and nobody is seizing it. Nobody is putting it into action. And it's, and it's sad. It's always been like that though, uh, of course. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Tell me how the opening was of your show end of silence that actually continues through October 12th and why October 12th, as we know that day. Is I, have, I, I think it's a scheduling issue. So they, they run shows for, um, you know, you, a little more than a month. Um, but the director of Red Line, her name is uh, uh, Louise, and um, she's a good friend and also, uh, oddly enough, a fellow punk rocker. I, I usually get, if I get extra tickets, I, I bring her along for sure. Um, but they have committed to a year-long set of exhibitions in the space that are based specifically on contemporary indigenous arts. Um so I'm going to be participating in some more stuff coming up. This was just the kickoff to all of that. Um, so I think it's just a scheduling thing. And, and oddly enough, um, I have another exhibition in Colorado Springs uh, that opened last week um, or the week before last. And um, uh, it is uh, called This Is Our Land. And uh, it is a completely different show with a completely different setup. It's with the UC Colorado Springs uh, College, um, and uh, it's up through December. So, you know, if anybody's listening that's uh, in town or, you know, visiting, it's it'll be around 
um, but sort of definitely play not sort of, but definitely playing on the same sort of themes, but um, from sort of more of a um, less of the pop sort of uh, comic book style and more of uh, just sort of a, a visual art point of view. So you were talking, you mentioned the word four letter word to a lot of people land, right? Yeah. We, we hear it now, been hearing it forever. I can, for Lakota, my people, it's land back for the Black Hills. We've been trying to get that land back for over a hundred years. And now it's it's the trendy thing for Native people to do. So we got land back organizations. Acknowledgement is, I experienced plenty of that acknowledgement out here. We are on Lenape land. We are on, you know, whatever, who's, whoever tribe that was there, not there anymore. We're on their land and we acknowledge that. Is that just another guise for something that's deeper? I mean, I think it depends on who's saying it. Um, I mean, throughout academia, they've been doing land acknowledgements for at least the last five years or so um, in, a, in an official capacity. Um, I think it's sort of like the apology, you know, there's only so many times you can say something before we recognize that there's no actions behind your words. Um, so it's not just acknowledgement. It, uh, it, I think it can happen in small ways, whether that's supporting organizations that are um, pushing for uh, land back and the principles that are attached to that, uh, representation, uh, authority in the spaces where we should have authority, um, so on and so forth. But um, that's now the hard part. People are doing land recognitions. I mean, I guarantee you somebody did a land recognition in, at Burning Man that doesn't mean anything, you know, if you're not putting anything behind it. And the language that America speaks is uh, one of capitalism. And so if you're going to say that you honor something, you, you need to put your dollars behind it. Because uh, not only does that help create the uh, access and resources that are needed for these organizations, um, but it also shows that you're willing to put the, the thing that Americans protect the most – uh, which is money, and uh, that you're willing to put that on the line. So, uh, and it sucks that that's the way it is, but that's the way that it is. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it is. The politics of convenience, whole idea that comes through there. But also, if I could give my thoughts on land back, when they say land back, they're just a, they don't go as far as yeah, we stole your land, we stole it, but now we're acknowledging that we stole it, so we're honoring the part that. We can't really give back the land, but we're going to be here all the time. So we make excuses, rationalizations for them. So we're really codifying our our expression into something that we can't work with eventually because there's no action behind it. You see where I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's hard. I mean, this is something that is completely new and completely different, and people have a difficult time wrapping their head around it in the same way that people have a difficult time wrapping their head around uh, accountability, what accountability looks like, and what that language looks like, whether that's um, accountability for acting inappropriate, accountability for things that have happened in uh, the past, um, the things that are happening in the future, and uh, all of those things require a certain amount of humility that I think America as a whole has a difficult time uh, doing. <laughs> we're not we're not the humblest of countries. No, so yeah, just one more thing about what I'm feeling that's coming through your arts, because you seem to be the ironic artist compared to, you know, mainstream, and even mainstream Native people are expected to 
this is the type of art that you're going to do, this romanticized type of art, and it's acceptable. What I felt with your art is that there's a certain amount of detox going on there, you see? And I think that that's what I feel. It's a very high volume of it that I'm feeling, and I can't put it into rebellion or anything like that, counterculture. Those are words are interchangeable in this society, but again, it comes to the language. So the best I could come up with, yeah, he's detoxing, and that's how I feel when I see your artwork. That's that's really interesting. Um, I, I've made it a point to not participate in um, in certain spaces, and I'm not saying I'll never participate, but um, you know, for now. Uh, I'm I'm not terribly interested in the Santa Fe art market, and uh, and I'm interested in creating contemporary work that can you know stand on its own, hopefully stand on its own as work that is informed by um, an indigenous experience, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 a native person that's having an American experience and the duality of of that existence. Um, and so often, like, I, I think even Native, like, all of us as Native people, we get stuck in these spaces where, you know, we chastise one another. Like, you can't do this or you can't do that. Um, and I, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's any way, you know. That's that's why there were scouts, because certain people decided that they needed to go and, and, and do that. And like it or not, they go in, and do that. And I've been chastised by people from other communities on certain things that would be viewed as being um, tradition or, or something along those lines. And even we forget that the traditions of, you know, our communities don't necessarily apply to anybody else. And so I work within my community. I'm concerned about what, what my elders think um, and not necessarily what everybody else thinks, but I think it also points to how important it is um, as, as, as creators of things, whether you're in filmmaking or you're doing visual art or photography or any of those places to recognize not just the shared experience, but also the individual experiences that we're having. Because we oftentimes pigeonhole ourselves to believe that you have to dress a certain way, you have to talk a certain way, you have to have a certain name, you have to have a certain skin tone, certain features. All of those things, all of those ideas, those expectations have been thrust upon us through capitalism in an effort to eliminate us. And uh, we lose the colorful and beautiful variety that our people on this continent have to offer awesome thanks for bringing that up and i feel more like that is fitting for the title of your show is the end of silence and and now that like breaking loose now and it's no longer about being silent and let's put all that what you just said into it i want to thank you greg deal for being here and yeah continue to express yourself in some cultures, many cultures, many languages, indigenous, there's no word for art. How would you explain it if there was no word for art? Uh, medicine. Medicine. Our artists are medicine people, whether they know it or not. They're creators. They're a little bit crazy. They're a little bit uh, untethered. They are free-spirited, and they are creating stuff uh, that are meant to, uh, to stand as healing or beauty or truth or any of those things, and I think it's all medicine. Good, good note to end on, so to speak. So, But thanks, Greg. It's awesome. No, I appreciate being here, man, very much. All right. Take care of your family and you. Okay. You too. It was great, great to see you. 
was The Path, featuring Jeremy Cause on the album Code Red and by the Union City Band inspired by the late great Vince Fontaine. Staging the World was created by Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small. The 20-minute documentary, which premiered earlier this year, is the focal point of a campaign to deter the global rush on white sage, driven by widespread cultural appropriation of smudging. Sage bundles can be found everywhere at grocery stores and online retailers, specialty shops, and outdoor markets. The practice of saging, burning dried sage leaves to purify or cleanse the air has gone mainstream and become a common sight in movies, reality shows, and yoga classes. Yet the appropriated use of saging in popular culture is having the opposite effect, harming both indigenous communities and the sacred plant. 
Our two guests, Rose Ramirez and Deborah Small, are here to talk about Saging the World. And you can find out more about the film, which can be found at cnps.org slash sagingtheworld. I'd like to welcome you, Rose, and Deborah, to First Voices Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Saging the World. Both of you are involved in, in producing, directing, filming, participating, experiencing the devastation of a plant that's so misunderstood. And someone said in your documentary, Saging the World, that maybe it's the fact that the, the young people aren't being educated. They don't know and the difference, so their, their education is not there. And that speaks to a bigger topic for another conversation. We know that we grew up with sage in our lives and with our peoples and ancestors. And why saging the world? What prompted you to start this after all these years, uh, 20, 30, 40, maybe even more decades of misuse by those who aren't from your area? We could say the appropriation culturally, the poaching but why now and why saging the world? Well, we started looking at white sage in this way, the poaching, because um, Barbara Drake, who was a Tongva elder, um, who we worked with um, a lot, had concerns about some development uh, that was going to take place, some more development near the Etiwanda Preserve, which was near her. And um, so we looked into it and sage, white sage was a very personal and important plant to her. And this Etiwanda Preserve was where the, this very large white sage stand existed. And it was one of uh, maybe at the time, maybe one of two that remained in Southern California. And I think the other one is gone now. And so it really was very special to Native people and had been part of a mitigation when they built the 210 freeway. So we, I looked into the uh, development side uh, for Barbara, and Deborah was doing some research, too, into it, and she found the poaching. Deborah Small, could you talk about how you found poaching for White Stage? Sure. I think... I think um... And, and I should also say, Rose and I had actually done a book called The Ethnobotany Project um, before this had begun. And we had talked to people about White Sage in 2016 when it was published. So, um, but we hadn't really focused so much on what was going on now currently and about the poaching as much. But I think what we've seen is now with, the, with social media, there's just been this exponential rise of um, the poaching and it being now, it's now a, really a global commodity. And we, when we started doing the research online, we found it everywhere, absolutely everywhere from Etsy, Target, Walmart, Alibaba, which is the Chinese version of Amazon, as well as Amazon. But they're selling it everywhere. And I think we were pretty horrified by that. We had no idea. It took us both deep diving down the rabbit hole and we spent a lot of time there. And we just saw this metamorphosis, I call it a metamorphosis. Here's something that was so, as it's called in the film, a sacred plant, a grandmother plant, a prayer plant, a ceremonial plant. And now it's a global commodity for, you know, to make smudge sticks and essential oils, lotions, potions, all those kinds of things. And uh, I think, you know, we felt like it, it's gotten so out of hand that we wanted to address it. But we already knew people that we could talk to. 
And that was really important to us. We, we you know, I've already talked to, pe- talked to people about white sage and about 11 other plants in that particular book. So we started there with some of those folks, but then we expanded as well to some people we had never met or just who had been recommended to us by some of those participants. And when we did the Ethnobotany Project, the idea of poaching was already known to us because uh, we've been having problems with acorns, which are used year-round by uh, people here. Uh, And a lot of people were telling us that they'd go uh, together annually to gather their acorns for the year and they'd be all gone. We have people complaining about many other plants that were being poached, but nobody had mentioned poaching of white sage in particular. We kind of knew just about the cultural appropriation of white sage. We didn't know how the effect the cultural appropriation had directly on our stands. We didn't know that they were stealing the plant for the market. And that's, you know, when we discovered it with uh, through Barbara's uh, concerns. Rose, when you, you saw people crossing the line and Barbara Drake, the elder, also saw people crossing the line, what alarms went off for you? What went off and how much of that ignorance, so to speak, did not, didn't, they didn't know about this. Like you said, you were surprised, it seems, that this was happening. And the experience that I had, this white sage, I thought, wow, this is, if it's not from South Dakota, because we have our own, but yet it was an influence of other people's bringing that in. So the practices, it felt very tribally, interculturally appropriation. I'm a Lakota using white sage from California. And we say it's all good, but yet we don't even understand that we're crossing the line also with cultural appropriation. You see where I'm going with that, Rose? Absolutely. Believe me, we've talked about it. Uh, I first need to say I am not affiliated with the tribe. I have Shumash ancestry, so I don't speak for any tribe. But when it comes to, we see the white sage has become pan-Indian, which is a term you know, I think most people kind of understand among the Native community. Um, We have concerns because it's a delicate subject. When we did, uh, when we did this magazine recently called Flora for the Native Plant Society, we were guest editors. We asked uh, Susan Leopold from United Plant Savers to write about the different sages that we are used in the native communities around uh, the country in particular, because we know I have had conversations with people uh, that when they talked about white sage on some of their web, you know, maybe they were from South Dakota or other places and they had these webinars and they'd mentioned white sage. They weren't specific to say which sage they were talking about. And I was saying, we need to be very clear about which sage we're talking about because we have our California Salviapiana. This is the one that is going all over the world. The other plants that are being used need to be clearly identified as to their region and who is using them traditionally. So we don't, we don't get confused. We've, we've also found that because of the situation and, and this, it's a, unfortunately it's become a misunderstanding even with the native, within the native community as to what plant they're supposed to use versus what plant they are using. I I know that's 
probably been a long time happening over decades, but we've even found it in the even the some of the recent programs with uh, television and movies with native people, even native writers. Uh, they've been using salvia piana and sometimes even with an abalone shell, which is really coastal. We have abalone shells because it's part of the creation stories here along the coast. So when we see them like in Wyoming, we see an abalone shell with uh, salvia piana. We think it's doing harm because it's telling the rest of the world that's watching this show that this sage, it grows everywhere and all native tribes use this particular sage with this shell. And we know that that's really not the case. So we're kind of misinforming and we need to really deal with that issue. Someone mentioned, either you, Deb, or Rose mentioned that there was one that went extinct. Could you talk about that a little bit? We oh, talked about the abalone going extinct, partially because of the overfishing, poaching, and climate change. Deborah, you did some research on the abalone. You know, most recently, there are, there are seven species of abalone in California, and um, the Native people used, you know, many of them, depending on where they were um, on the coast, but anyway, a couple of years ago, there was a big article in the LA Times, and there was mainly species of concern, but now, when we did the flora, they actually sent um, some of the things we sent them, talking about species of concern and endangered, and they actually said, now they're all endangered, all seven species are endangered. This was somebody from something, somewhere like the Monterey aquarium where they have scientists who do that research so the very up-to-date is that all seven species are endangered so the idea of seeing this you know propagated along i mean shown along with you know white sage and um, as a way that people can actually burn their sage that that's you know culturally appropriated just like it's it's really disturbing and um, even if these um abalone shells are farmed which they are now and you can find small ones on the internet that are under six inches they're not, they're not, you know, wild gathered, but um, still it's, it's appropriating, you know, a, a native ceremony. And I think that's what we're not encouraging, trying to discourage very much through the film. In the, in the film, Nick Rocha says that his mother, Vera Rocha, believed that the white sage would become extinct. And he felt that that's the, that now we can visually see that that's a big possibility if the poaching continues. Uh, currently, there is protection for white sage because there's protection for all our plants. It is illegal to harvest anything from any public lands. You can only harvest from private lands with permission. Public lands, you'd have to actually get an official permit. So uh, all of our plants should be protected, but there's no real enforcement. Uh, and and when we talked to the Forest Service, asking them what they knew about poaching of white sage on forest lands, they it wasn't even in the radar. They were more concerned about uh, marijuana growers and illegal growing. I think when we started this, maybe it was even not legal yet to to grow uh, any marijuana. So um, the the idea of it going extinct, several people in our film talk about that because they knew how much white sage was being taken, how much is out there on the market. And when you find virtually one grower of white sage, who's only doing so many hundreds of pounds a year, and you realize it's many thousands of pounds on the market and oil, which takes even more sage, you realize 
there's just a tremendous amount coming from our lands in California here, Southern California. Thank you for that. I'm speaking with Deb Small and uh, Rose Ramirez, who put out the, the short film documentary, Saving the World, or excuse me, Saging the World. I'd, I'd like that, Saving the World, too, but yeah. <laughs> Saging the World. And I think in your smudging, there is there really a translation for smudging? Because we say azila, basically there's that prayers appear and then they disappear. But smudging is, is often, you know, associated with ash. Is that, is that where the, the word came from? Is that area of the Chumash? I don't know where uh, it would originate because I think the burning of plants is one form of, of ceremony where you, you burn. White sage is often used in sweats here. Uh, people use it just for breathe, to help them breathe a lot of times because it is such a, a strong odor. Uh, you can feel your breath through mm. it. Um, it is used as a tea for medicine. So the uh, but burning is a specific for specific ceremonies that different uh, groups in, in Southern California and Northern Baja do. But there are other types of plants that are used and they're not burned at all. And they're used in very important ceremonies. So saging, um, I think the word might have come from when we were interviewing uh uh, Tima Link was the one who actually used this um, term. I think it was her uncle told her after a fire and the sage had burned where they used to gather on a hillside that he, I think he said the world just needed some saging off. And I think that's where we kind of developed the title. We really liked the idea, but it's a double-sided, uh, kind mm. of a double-edged sword because the world certainly needs ceremony. It yeah. needs some sort of cleansing and healing. But what we, when we talk about saging the world in this film, we're talking about the entire world is taking this plant and, um, and using it for burning sage and destroying it. So it's kind of like this double-edged thing. Yes. Halloween is coming out, right? And so people are going to pretend to be, they're pretending and say they tend to dress up like Native people. But really, in the New Age community, and I'm going to mention this, uh, a lot of people who are non-Native come out with the abalone. They come out with the white sage. They come out with all the accoutrements to say that they are sacred. And yet, on the other hand, you have a Native person who can't afford all the accoutrements. But they are so real because it's just a simple thing because that relationship even with the sage is so, I would say, so relatable to Native people. So you see cultural appropriation happening right in front of you. And how much of that can they really take from us until they understand? And that's where you all come in with the educational process. One of your your uh, subjects in, in the film talked about the lack of education, and it starts with that somewhere. Um, I think when when people... Uh, culturally appropriate, especially when they're going through the motions of something like a native ceremony and they have absolutely no relationship to it. When they're praying with a, a, a different cultures, uh, plants, and even chants and abalone shell, who whose ancestors are you talking to? Are you talking to these native people's ancestors or are you trying to speak to your own ancestors who are from another area 
who know a different language, who know a different plant, who know a different ceremony. Your, your cultural appropriation is only taking the pieces you like. You're not respecting the culture to understand it and to understand what you are taking from a people who didn't even have the legal right to practice the ceremony until 1978. And even then it wasn't enforced enough that they had to create an additional act in 1994, I think it was, so that native people had the right to use their white sage. By this time, it is already in the non-native community uh, being used for ceremony and smudging and meditating while native people themselves weren't even allowed to use it legally. And as I understand, Deborah Small, as a gardener and artist, writer, professor, the, the area, the range is very small. It's not that big. It's only in the southern, very southern half of California and running into the Baja of California. And you all had uh, Culendera on, I would call her that from what I see. She, in speaking Spanish, is that she also has the same views as you do, Rose, and you too, Deborah, that it's being what happens to this being when it's gone? What happens to the prayers of the people who have been living there for eons? What happens? So Deborah, could you tell us about maybe the, the possibility of it going away faster if we're not if it's not protected? Yeah, well, I think was yeah, I think that's that was the whole reason for um, our wanting to create this film and have the various native folks in the film, the participants, all speak to that because I think that. Um, you know, it's having an effect on people. They're very disturbed by what they're seeing. And they're also elated that at the end we have some, you know, really clear action things that they can actually do, and you know, to help interrupt the supply chains. And we're really trying to hit the consumers um, because it's really hard to get at the poachers. It's um, in the film, it shows um, actually a couple undocumented workers. They're not the problem. They're being exploited too. We like to make that clear that people shown in the film aren't the issue. They're getting 25 cents to a dollar per pound. It's going on the market for up to $60 a pound. So there's an incredible exploitation of both sage as well as worker. But um, I think that it's, I think that there's a huge concern among many of our participants that that will happen. But we have this big cultivation push and that's, we're in the area for that. And, and the nurseries are helping support us in that. The whole, there's 35 different chapters of the California Native Plant Society here in Baja. And they're, um, you know, trying to help with giveaways of sage and trying to expand, you know, from this film sort of going outward in concentric circles and making that wider and wider. And Rose and I have also ended our um, co-director, David Bryant, who's now in Hawaii, but we're trying to get the film out in film festivals to reach a more international audience even. So um, everything we're doing in a way is to try and get the word out, interrupt the supply chains, you know, by, by really provide habitat, provide, you know, resources for not only ourselves, but the world around us, all the species. So, oh, yes, that, that would be a great film to, to show up here um, in this area of the Hudson, Southern Hudson and Northern Hudson Valley. And a lot of that misappropriation, misunderstanding, miseducation is happening and yet it's the, the privilege that oversees anything said by native people. You see where I'm coming from. And they think because that's the privilege of American, we can take anything we want. So that that's one good reason because we have to speak to the heart of the matter because evidence is evidence. And the evidence that I had is that when during the, the 80s and 90s into the 2000s, 
the blue sage that was going away in South Dakota was because off reservation people were coming in onto the reservations to take it and it was almost gone so they stopped and and showing them you don't pick female sage showing them this is what how you use it if you're going to use it but actually it goes deeper than that is that maybe if you're taking it differently and using it differently it'll help you and because i think the selfishness in prayer sometimes is the rest of life is forgotten in that prayer because it's just not about human beings. That, that's a big statement, but thank you <laughs> both for being here. Any last thoughts you can, you know, give to the people out there. And, and I guess I'd like to have it up here, even zoom you on, on something so people can understand, because I think that it's going to take a while to get into people, especially this, this uh, film, Saging the World. Well, we, we certainly could do a virtual screening if you wanted to arrange one with us. Um, I think one of the things we really uh, want people to know is if you have a use for white sage, even if it's for a tea, a medicine, because you've got a cold or a sore throat, um, you cannot buy it unless you absolutely know it was grown for that purpose and it's sustainable. And it really should be organic because you're going to be consuming it or even breathing it. And so, but in areas where you can grow it, we highly recommend that it is grown because it is a very important part of our ecology. And it the destruction through poaching is affecting our insect populations, our bird populations, and other animals that are part of that whole cycle. So uh, by bringing native plants to our homes, which we're a big promoter of, we are actually helping restore native plants and native communities, starting with our own homes, even if it's in a pot only or in a community garden. And we try to really encourage to be uh, to do that. And Deb, do you have any last thoughts? You know, just I really think to say, yeah, thank you to everyone who might be considering doing this. And it's really about planting native plants in your area to help the you know, the other populations, the other species that we exist with and who are, who are relatives, right? I've learned that certainly working with all the Native people that I have. These are relatives, all of them. And if we can consider the earth, the plants, our relative, I think our whole way of viewing everything changes, everything. Thank you for being here. I think, you know, we barely touched the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. It does have to be sort of a campaign that people need to be inspired by that truth. And I think that's been buried for so long that you can simply take something as if it was a religion, you know. Right. And, and even a religion, I think some of the people say, I wouldn't go into your church and start using your incense and start saying your prayers. If I don't know anything about it, it's not part of my culture. So I think they need to respect Native people's culture and history and use of plants. I think that's what's missing is that, well, of course, it goes back to also education. We need to educate our population to understand the history of Native peoples in these lands. If we don't do that, that's why people don't have any respect for the culture. I mean, they don't know anything. And in some cases, remember, I was telling somebody recently, there the the U.S. tried to say that Native people were destroyed before 1900 after all the wars and everything. They tried to say they were gone because then they didn't have to worry about the lands they lived on or the culture or anything. But they're not gone. They've never been gone. People are still here 
cultures, ceremony, traditions, and we need to know, let people know that Native people are still here and they need to be respected. And right. the, sage, the sage is still here and it needs to be. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The sage is still here too. Well, thank you both, Deb Small and Rose Ramirez, for being here on First Voices. Such an honor to talk to you and I feel like we need to talk some more. So I think that's coming, but thank you thank for being you. here. Very good, honored to have you thank here. You. Thank you. And you have been listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokasen Ghost Horse. We'll see you next time.